Well, happy Mother's Day. It's awesome. I, uh, when I think of Mother's Day, I think of what my kids used to ask every mother or father's day, and that is, when is it going to be Children's Day? <laughs> and you give them that, really, you know? So maybe yours didn't, but mine did. Mine were extra self-absorbed, maybe. <laughs> I, trained, I trained them well. Uh, uh, pray for me this morning. I have been, as my dad used to say, sick as a dog all week. You ever been sick as a dog before? And uh, um, so I, if I say something stupid, it's because I have a hangover from so much NyQuil that I've drank all week. And if I mispronounce something, it's sort of normal. So, uh, <laughs> but at least I have an excuse this morning uh, to do so. We are... Uh, it has been fun the last four weeks and now today the fifth to take a break from Isaiah and really focus in on what does it mean for our lives to genuinely change in Christ. And so we have talked about the power of change, the resurrection. If Jesus is alive, then anything is possible. We've talked about the gradients of change. If you remember in our second sermon, <coughs> how to have this vision, intention, and means. If you haven't seen that, go back. We talked about, Monty talked about the environment of change, which is God's church, how he set it up. Phil last week did an incredible job as he talked about the need for change, right? How we dig our own cisterns that have polluted, as, as my daughter said, poopy water in it, right? And, uh, and we try to get life from that. And today I want to talk about the strategy for change, Strategy for change. One of our values at Fellowship, and I believe is a very biblical value, is that life change is a way of life. I must have the mindset, biblically, that every day, no days off, steady, layer by layer, three steps forward, two steps back, Jesus is about changing me from the inside out. And so, what you see on the screen in terms of the five Connections is what we would say is the strategy of change or the way of life change. As the gospel, as you can see in the middle, is the spiritual glue which holds all these together. Now, I really tried. I may have missed something. I'd love an email or conversation if you can. I think everything from Genesis to Revelation can be placed in one of those five or six categories, including the gospel. I don't think there's anything in the Bible that can't come under those. And so it's our way, simply, we're not trying to be extra biblical. We're simply trying to give you something that you can remember. These are the key areas that consistently I can continue to go back to, not in a certain order, but to ask, where am I? How am I doing? Where do I need to change? And I think they all fall under Scripture. I think if I thought about this week, I thought Christians, for the most part, uh, we have not matured in Christ-likeness. We have not changed because we have bought into our own strategy of change. We all have a strategy for change. And I grew up, and I think we are growing up in what I would call cultural Christianity. This is a quote that I came across from the Gospel Coalition this past week, which I think describes why we don't change. 66% of church-going Christians agreed the highest goal of life is to enjoy yourself. There's some groans there, hopefully. 
72% said they should pursue things you most desire. Well, it depends upon what those are, obviously. And 76 agreed that looking within yourself is the best way to find yourself. Now, this simply shows that everyone has a strategy for life change. Some, like this, will bring life chaos, not life change. And these kind of statistics also expose, I think, the lies we believe about God and about life change. It shows us that the human heart is impossible to satisfy. Would you say amen to that? When I don't have enough, I want more. When I have plenty, I want more. And so what we need to do is start with putting our hearts, putting the stakes of the gospel, the most satisfying news ever, start with that and stick it deep down into our souls so we can have a see and have a mindset and a heart for life change. And that's why we start with the gospel. Our strategy is helping gospel-grounded people. That's Who are gospel-grounded people? It is people who know that before Christ, they were dust, simply collecting more dust. And God in his mercies did not wait for us to believe, did he? He didn't wait for us to perform well. Ephesians 2, 4, Paul writes... God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive. We were dead, Paul says, and out of God's great love for us from eternity past, for you and I, he made us alive so we could believe. So you could see his beauty, as John Piper says, so you could treasure him as your greatest treasure and enjoy him as your greatest pleasure. That is where gospel-grounded people start. If we fail to start there, the rest is just a to-do list. These gospel lenses we must put on as we experience life change. Matt Chandler puts it this way. He says, God loved you even at your darkest moments. Scripture promises that while we were still enemies, Christ loved us and died for us. So if he loved you, even when you were running away and fighting against him, why wouldn't he love you now while you're stumbling along in your growth toward maturity? Amen. Right? That's where we have to start these immovable gospel stakes that every day we get up, we preach the gospel to ourselves, we stick these stakes and we hang on to them in our souls. That we come for life change under the umbrella that we are fully loved and fully accepted by the God of the universe because of the work of Christ on our behalf. Now when we start there, there's a real chance for change. And the first place we start is upward with God. Meaning we simply say, how do I get to know intimately this God who made me alive when I was dead? Now under this, you could certainly include worship gathering, Bible studies, discipleship group, equipping, study of the scriptures, all that. Prayer. This morning I want to focus for our time in what I would call... A daily meeting with God. A devotional daily meeting with God that's set up in your calendar each and every day. I, I have a 
I don't know this because I haven't asked everybody, but I've always had this deep suspicion that if we really knew, if, if we really knew, and I know when I get people one-on-one, -on -one, I will ask them, what does your time in the scriptures look like? And I can tell you most of the time, 80, 90%, it is very little. I, I think if we really knew what everybody in this room, what their times of meeting with God looked like, we would be stunned. We'd be stunned. And so I want to start here this morning <clears throat> with this idea of this daily meeting devotional with God. I want to start with us with a mindset first. Okay? Here's what you and I need to remember. I, I'm just going to speak for me. But it is true for you too. What God needs to do in you always matters more than what you think he needs to do through you. Folks, that's the mindset. That's why I come to the scripture. If I think any different than that, it doesn't work. We ask God to move mountain, mountains, forgetting that many times we are that mountain that needs to be moved. He cares more about my character when no one is looking than he does about my public ministry. There's no replacement. I, I just, there's nothing. I can't say that stronger, stronger than that. There's no replacement for finding in a lone space, opening your Bible and reading it daily. If you were to read your Bible for 15 minutes a day, for a year, you would read way more than the entire Bible. Imagine with me, year after year after year after year of that. Of, of reading the textures and colors and scripture. And as you're reading, you're looking at this passage saying, that reminds me of this passage. And you begin connecting dots. Year after year, surveying God's alive revelation and all of his textures and colors will change you and mold you and shape you. I read last night, a friend of mine is dying of a brain tumor. He'll staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, is in his late 50s. His daughter wrote a blog post. He doesn't know who she is. He doesn't know who his wife is. And as she was reading the Proverbs to him, I believe she said Proverbs 2, he began reading along with her. He began quoting scripture. That man has spent 40 plus years, 15, 20 minutes a day, diving down into the scripture. It's so deep in him. He can't even remember who his wife is, but he can remember the very words of God. That's what shapes us. And here's what I do. I'll just give you what I do. I find me a yearly Bible reading plan. You can read the New Testament, Proverbs, Psalms. You can do it backwards. You can go, revel I mean, you do whatever you want. But I find me a plan. I need a plan. Secondly, I sit down. I, I don't do this perfectly, but I can say before you that this is how I operate. And I pray. I say, Lord, help me. I need you. There is a cry for help. 
And I put my gospel lenses on because the last thing I need is to get the heck beat out of me. To read it in some twisted fashion. And when I don't feel like it, I ask the Lord to incline my heart to his testimonies like the psalmist does. I ask the Lord in my prayer to show me your glory. Often I don't feel like it. And I remind myself of Proverbs 28. I have it written in the front of my Bible. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. And me not opening your word says that I am trusting in my own mind. And I do not want to be a fool. That's the mindset that I come. And then... I read my passage. And the first thing I do, just so you know, is I try to find the context. I, I just do because I'm scared of me. I think of, for example, Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38, I think. There's a verse there, Luke 1, 37, that says, All things are possible with God. Now, I want you to know, as Christians, we have murdered that verse. We put it on bumper stickers and we read it. I heard David Platt, famous missionary for the Southern Baptist, said he read that as a 15-year-old new Christian, went out, prayed in his driveway, and tried to go dunk a basketball and ran into the goalpost. All things are possible with God. See, that's, that's why, but the passage in context is about the virgin birth. So I can't just... I got to find the context. It takes two minutes. Okay, virgin birth. You got a little title in your Bible, right? During the passages. That's what we're talking about. So I won't go crazy and start making all kind of conclusions. I'm going to make the NFL or get rich. <laughs> and then I remind myself, here's the big question. Why do I read the Bible? What is our goal? It is to know and enjoy the Lord Jesus who is alive. Philippians 3.8, Paul says, The surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. John 17, Jesus prayed for that very thing, that we would know the Father intimately. Hosea 6.3 said, Let us press on to know the Lord. And so when I read devotionally, I'm not necessarily looking for a list of to-dos. They will come. But... I, I am looking for my heart to connect with the heart of God through his word. And here's what happens. Change comes counterintuitive. It's not that I read a list and go begin doing those, although I won't argue if that's your takeaway. But my heart begins to be in a line with the Lord Jesus. And I am looking for his kindness to me in Christ. I am looking for I do not get what I deserve. I am looking for his glory. And as I see his greatness, there's a counterintuitive change. Then my heart begins to line up with how he would have me live. Because of his mercy and grace to me. I love Psalms 119.18. It's my verse that I took away from years of seminary. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. And over time, what happens, I begin to see God differently. I begin to see myself differently. And I begin to see others differently. Does that make sense? I urge you. I think if I was laying on my deathbed. I would say two things to my kids. The gospel is such good news. 
And secondly, I would say, read the scriptures. Wallow in them. 15, 20 minutes a day. And enjoy Christ. And watch the long-term effect on your life. So, I could stop there, but I have four more points. <laughs> Secondly, we want to connect backward with God. Not backward with God. <laughs> we just connected over with God. But I have been drinking uh, plenty of drugs this week. So, uh, we're going to connect backward with our stories, aren't we? Yes, we are. <coughs> Let me start here a minute. Uh, this is an important area when it comes to change. There are two things that primarily contribute to mining your distrust of God. It is our own fallen nature. Okay, There's a natural bent to distrust God, as we saw in Genesis 3. And also the fallen nature of others toward me. The pain and hurt that I have experienced. When humans experience pain and hurt through abandonment, rejection, abuse, humiliation. Uh, when that takes place, uh, uh, me connecting back with my story allows me to understand not only my own fallenness, but also how others' fallenness have contributed to who I am and why I do what I do or why I struggle with what, why I struggle. Does that make sense? When you and I are in touch with the pain or our pain from our past, then we can be in touch with God's great provision for us. And I'm going to show you that in a minute. But when we don't connect, here's where we fail. We fail to connect where we came from with where we are or how we came, what, how we came from causes us to react in a reflex moment. And when we fail to do that, when we don't connect the dots between our story and our reflex reactions, the why behind the what, then change doesn't take place. And here's what you and I need to understand. Most other people can see it easily. We can see other people's, yep, they got a story, and here's some things that probably happened in their story because we see their reactions in these reflex moments. I want us to know that connecting backward with our stories is not an excuse for sinful behavior, but it is an explanation for it. If we're not familiar with the pain of our story, we will react versus respond in situations. And if we don't know our own story, what we can't do is we can't connect with empathy with others in their painful stories. Connecting backward with our story absolutely actually puts me in the same position as others. That I know what it's like to be hurt and so I can genuinely rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Paul in Acts 26. I want you to write these two passages down. Paul in Acts 26. You can read it later. He tells of the pain he caused, why he caused it in his own story, and God's provision for him. It's a beautiful picture of Paul telling his story. In Nehemiah 9, that's another passage you can write down. In Nehemiah 9, the writer walks through the Israelites' Old Testament history and story form. 
It's an incredible passage that lays out all of the sin and sickness and harm and, and sinfulness that Israelite committed. And here's how the passage ends. Yet you, God, have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. When we go back in our stories, we see the sinfulness of ourselves, the sinfulness of others toward us, and yet we see God's great provision for us, if that makes sense. That's how it always ends. I'm reminded of the Lancasters a couple weeks ago who had the great courage to have their story videoed. Remember that? And they shared it with us. Their story is not only God's gift to them, but also a gift that they get to give away for the rest of their lives. And they did so. And so is my story. And so is your stories. Here's what our stories do. When we connect and we go back and we think through them, our stories gives us the platform to our greatest impact to others in ministry. Our hurts, our failures are the breeding ground for us to teach, warn, disciple, help, and love others. Because they are the exact place of God's most profound grace in our life. You know why Jen and I get high, rem high marks at a family life conference speaking there? Because we're great speakers? Nope. You got all these famous authors on that team and then you got Jeffro Bodine. Okay? I'm just telling the truth. Because we share our story. Our seven years, first seven years of pain and struggle and uh, intimate struggles. And people go, yeah, God's using us because of that. Here's a key for us when we think about backward with our story. If the reaction is bigger than the actual event, you're going back home. Back in your story at some level. Can I say that again? If mine and your reaction is bigger than the actual event, meaning in reality a pebble was dropped, but you respond as if it were a boulder. I know no one does that, correct? You're looking around going, me? <laughs> if reaction is bigger than the actual event, you're going back home, back in your story on some level. Now, let me give you some nuggets here, I think, or some, some clues of when you may be going back home, when your story is affecting how you respond. I just wrote some examples down. When we judge others, when we're accusatory, when we're full of anxiety for no reason, like there's no reason, right? It's just we walk in a room and we feel it and we're going, uh-oh, there's something we're going back. When we always have this victim mentality, when these have these unexplained emotional explosions, when we become paralyzed emotionally in situations, when we move toward isolation and live there, when we scream for affirmation. I can see people's social media and going, they're going back home. They're screaming for affirmation. 
false intimacy, when we pursue that, when we're untrusting, we don't believe the best in people. We have the addictions as people talked about or Phil talked about last week. We're always trying to prove our significance. You can look at a person, what they chase and why they chase it in life is their highest goal. And you can say they're going back home. The blame game, shame, always negative, never enough. And again, it's so easy to see in others and so hard to see in myself. Um, some of my emotional explosions because of my family of origin have been some of the darkest days of my life as a Christian. I grew up um, with an alcoholic dad, a verbally uh, and emotionally abusive mom. My head was always on a swivel. You never knew what you were walking into. And here's at the end of the day, you were darned if you do and darned if you didn't. And so you'd be, you, the hammer was going to drop on you for something. Something as small as forgetting to empty the garbage would become this incredible, emotional, name-calling, screaming, raging explosion on you as a person. And so the hammer was always going to drop. I do think one of the gospel has been so comforting to me because growing up, I never could do enough. And the gospel stepped in and said, you are enough because of my work on your behalf. Uh, I saw this little uh, sickness of mine raise its head a few months ago. I got a letter from Family Life as I do every spring and it said, you are speaking with Dennis Rainey and Crawford Loritz in Atlanta, Georgia at the Family Life Conference. Y'all, anybody know who they are? Okay, just so you know. My first thought was, they're setting me up to fire me. <laughs> I did, I thought it, and it was as real, I can't help it. I thought the hammer's gonna drop, they don't wanna do it, they wanna, they're gonna see me, then they're gonna say, yeah, you're not, it's not really working out after 14 years, and see you, big fella. Now, there was no evidence of that. But do you see how the hammer's going to drop? No matter how good your marks are, no matter how much Dennis loves to turkey hunt with you, right? It's over. So I drive to Atlanta, and I'm feeling some anxiety on Friday morning. And I usually don't go here. This is not normal for me. So I could tell it was different. And I'm in the hotel room going... Oh, God, I got to speak with Dennis. You know, maybe I should change my talks. And, you know, <laughs> and, and it's like the Lord said, easy, big fella. Look, you're enough. Just do what you always do. They're not your mom and dad. They are just men. Just speak as if I'm your only audience. So I had to do business with me and the Lord. I just want you to know I'm 53. That's a little embarrassing to tell. But it's true. 
I also want to say that I've been greatly encouraged. Uh, last week I was getting something out of the garage and I stood up on a chair, if you can imagine, and I pulled this plastic bin where all my paint stuff is to get some sandpaper. And as I did, the edge of the plastic bin caught a can of paint and the paint cans falling 10 feet from the air and I'm seeing it fall. I can't get to it and it hits the table. The top comes off and it explodes on me, hits me here. And I look and it goes 20 feet across my garage. There were a thousand drops of paint on everything in its way. 20 years ago, I would have gone into a crazy, raging explosion. That would have scared my wife and kids to death. And I laughed this time. And I went and called Jenna and Joel and I said, y'all got to take a picture of this. <laughs> yeah. That change has come about from the hard work of going back in my story. And uh, God has been gracious. Ray Orland puts it this way. He says, many people get to church on Sunday having slogged through battles no one else knows about. Gentleness toward them is right. Only knowing our own stories can we live this out. Amen. Thirdly, <coughs> connecting withward with the body. C.S. Lewis says Jesus works on us in all sorts of ways, but above all, he works on us through each other. But for this to be true, what Lewis said, we must be in close proximity to one another. Acts 2, 42 through 47, basically says you and I are family. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. You can't do that from a distance. Believing everything God has said in his word is never risky, but it's dramatically risky to ever believe you know better than he does. Would you agree with that? Yes. And when you and I don't live in biblical community, we are saying to God, we know better than you. That's as plain as I can put it. One writer said, we are afraid of real community because it inevitably, inevitably limits freedom and choice. And I thought, yes, when I am living in biblical community in close relationship with people, I can't just do what I want, when I want, how I want. Someone will call me on it. Good for them and good for me. And that's what biblical community does. I have to call Monty on stuff all the time. <laughs> Did I get that backwards probably? <laughs> Jeff, we're going to fire you if you don't stop. <laughs> so I, I thought about this week. This has been a fun sermon just to think through big picture of the scriptures. All 12 of the disciples, all different, different backgrounds, occupations, temperaments, financial situations, different struggles. And they walked in community with Jesus because of calling, not chemistry or hobbies. Yeah. Me. I thought about my first small group. Came to Christ 34 years ago, placed in a small group. I was the only athlete in the group with a whole group of just plain old students. Now I want, yeah. 
I want you to know I had a lot of misconceptions about the normal college student, and they had a lot of misconceptions about the college athlete. And some of those guys became some of my best friends. We needed each other. We had one thing in common, literally one thing, Jesus and his mission. I uh, came across, uh, reread some of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book this week, Life Together, which I've read on numerous occasions. Uh, if you don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, he was uh, executed in the concentration camp during World War II for his faith, um, the camp of Flossenburg. But on April 8th, 1945, he conducted a Sunday service there in the prison of the uh, concentration camp uh, with people from many, many nationalities. And when he got done, the story goes that a man opened the door and said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. Bonhoeffer said goodbye to the group. He turned to a man and said, this is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. And the next day he was hanged for his faith. Here's what he writes about biblical community. I can't put it any better, so I'm reading it. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. The believer feels no shame when he yearns for the physical presence of other Christians. The believer, therefore, praises God for the bodily presence of a brother or sister in the faith, but oh, how easily forgotten that this fellowship is a gift of grace. Let him who has community fall on his knees and thank God for it. The community life is the roses and lilies of the Christian life. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. Amen. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. But he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. He enters, and this is a warning for us, he enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law and expectations, and when things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian community in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, but much weakness. Does that sound like most community groups? Small faith and difficulty, and we only keep complaining to God about it, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the riches which are there for us in Christ Jesus. Drop the mic. Right? I encourage you to live in community. Upward with God, backward with our story, withward with each other. And the last two, inward with our gifting. Romans 12, 4 through 6, you can write that passage down, talks about our gifts in the body. That We have one body, many members. All the members don't have the same function and gifts. Having these different gifts or gifts of grace to us and we are to use them. To do this, though, 
I think we need to make a shift in our hearts that the church is not primarily for us. But the church is a place where we use the gifts God has given us to build up the whole body. Our serving is not just an activity like every other activity we do in life during the week. Not at church. Our serving here is something we get to do. A privilege to us to serve with no strings attached what God has called his body or his bride or his followers. And I want us to know, reminder, that it's easy to drift into an entitlement mentality coming to church. Especially in Western America, is it not? So, we need to remember that our gifts are not to be recycled on ourselves. But to be given to others. I love Mark 10. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. That is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not to be served. And then to give his life in exchange for many who are held hostage. I'm reminded of just a couple of weeks ago, our ministry of Embrace Grace with mothers who find themselves with an unexpected pregnancy. We came here and we asked you to serve. We said they need things, they need gifts, they need food, they need hands and feet to throw these women a party, part of their once a semester deal. <laughs> Man, I was overwhelmed. Our staff was overwhelmed. By 12.30 that day, 44 gifts had been designated. The next day I was asking my wife about it. And look, when that happens, that's what builds a body up. Right, you, something indeed, we're on it. That's a great church body. And the next day I said, I said, Jenna, I saw you go over there. Did you get something? She said, yeah, I need you to order this $70 uh, high chair on Amazon. I was thinking in my head, honey, we, we don't make enough to give $70 gifts out. You know, like that $32 gift would have worked. But, you know, and she said, before you say anything, just know I've been saving our change for over a year. And here it is. And so she gives me all the $70 of change, right? So I got busted a little bit, you know. <laughs> I'm just inside. I was like, we can't do $70 twice a year, you know. Anyway, but they're getting a brand new high chair. I know that, right? But that's beautiful stuff. Serving with our gifting. And then lastly, outward with the mission. The supernatural, 100% guaranteed result of a person being connected upward with God, backward with the story, withward with each other, inward with their gifting. The result of those four things is that person will be connected outward with the mission. No doubt. That's why we spend so much time with those four because that's the platform to go outward. Outward with the mission takes place when we are alive and aware of how God has provided in those four areas that I just mentioned. That we are connecting upward in our relationship with Him and it's intimate. God has provided healing and provision in our pain and sinfulness. He has provided relationships with others that we're connected to, even though it's messy. And He's actually given us a purpose, purpose in life through using our gifts to serve this body, this transcendence reason to live. 
Uh, I think it's so important to remind ourselves to think, what was I like before I came to Christ? That being around unbelievers is so important for me to remember this outward with the mission. I mean, before I came to Christ, think about it. Every one of us, we didn't know the answers to life's biggest, most important questions. Philosophers have spent 40 years writing on this and they can't figure it out. Who am I? Where am I going? What is the meaning of life? What happens when I die? Does God exist? What is sin? How will it all end? How does God reveal himself? What is God like? What does it mean to know and love God? I didn't know any of that. Did you? Y'all going, yeah, we knew that. <laughs> no, you didn't. Not as a non-Christian. I think of Jesus' words, Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. I found a quote by Spurgeon this week. I thought about outward with the mission. It says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with their arms around their knees. And I thought, that's what a church body being out connected outward with the mission does. Yes, engage them, feed them, serve them, talk to them, love them, pray for them, share the gospel with them, and then let God be God. Spurgeon says, I'm hanging on your knees, though, bro. I'm coming after you, neighbor. Coming after me. Blow me off. It's all right. I'm coming. And then the Lord uses that. And he brings people to Christ. It's a beautiful picture. So, life change is a way of life. These five areas give us some steps, an old path, I think, to follow. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. And uh, we're grateful for your love for us in Christ. fun to think about life change, uh, the journey, the hardness, but it's worth it. I'm grateful that you're at work in us and through us. I'm grateful for this body. Grateful for what you're doing in us collectively and individually. And uh, we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.